I want to invite everyone to turn in their Bibles to the book of Matthew for what will be our last sermon in the Sermon on the Mount, which brings us to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 29. Can you guess how many decisions you make in one day? A dozen? A hundred? A thousand? Psychologists estimate that the average man and woman make around 35,000 decisions a day. That's a decision every two seconds, 2,000 decisions per hour, and 12 million in a year. That's a lot of decision making. Now obviously a lot of these decisions are small ones. So uh, for instance, whether you keep listening to this this sermon... You know, that's a decision you may or may not make. Or whether you turn right or left to uh, get to church, right? These are small decisions. Other decisions ha- require a little bit more effort. So it takes a little bit more effort to decide what you want to wear to church today or what you'll do for breakfast or whether you'll call someone today. It takes a little bit more effort to decide those things. And, and some decisions uh, obviously have a lot more consequences to them. So uh, what if Americans didn't help the Allied forces storm Normandy Beach? Or what if terrorists decided not to uh, attack the two towers on September 11th? One of the things that makes parenting so difficult is that you're almost always making decisions for another person. Uh, I'm going to help you decide what to eat, what you're going to wear, whether or not you should touch the outlet, whether you should go into that cabinet. We're making all kinds of decisions uh, for our children. And uh, even in parenting, the decisions we make can either be small or life-defining. So what they eat is a relatively small decision versus whether we give them a nurturing home, a life-changing decision. Scripture is, is not only replete with decisions to be made, but, but these decisions are often marked out in, in two separate ways. So in Genesis, Adam and Eve have the choice of eating either all the fruit that's in the garden or, or eating the fruit, not eating the fruit that's on the, the tree, the forbidden fruit. One is, one is life and one is death. Or, or again, in Joshua, Joshua tells the Israelites, uh, they must choose whom they will serve, the foreign gods of the land or the one true God. And this, the same is, is true here with Jesus. You have two ways ahead of you. You have the hard or easy road. You can bear good fruit or you can bear bad fruit. You can build on a rocky foundation or you can build on a sandy foundation. And like with Genesis and the fruit, and like with Joshua, one is life, and the other is destruction. But here's the catch. No one consciously chooses destruction and death. If if given the choice between life and death, people would choose life every time. The reason we choose death and destruction is because it looks good. Eve chose the forbidden fruit because what? It was good for food and a delight to the eyes. Everybody wants to walk on the road to life. Blaise Pascal said, all men seek happiness. 
This is without exception. This is the motive of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Every person is seeking life. Every person is seeking seeking happiness. We all want to walk the blessed road, the road that leads to blessedness. The question is whether our walking is according to our terms or the terms of Christ. And it's not inconsequential. How you respond to Christ's terms, how you respond to His words, will either lead you down to death or on to life. As you are confronted with the words of Christ today, you have the choice. And how you respond to His words today will lead you on the road to death or to life. He gives you two ways today. Let's turn and see these ways as we read from Matthew 7, starting in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Mallory and I have worked really, really hard on our marriage. We've had to give and sacrifice a lot. That's why we've spent so much energy on making our bed the most comfortable place in our home. We have memory foam pillows and a memory foam hybrid mattress. We have high quality goose down comforter and soft sheets. We work really hard to make our bed the place that it is. But you all know the danger of a comfortable bed. It's hard to get out. When we've settled for comfort in our walk with Christ, it's hard to get out and easy to compromise. That's why first, your walk with Christ is either comfortable or costly. Your walk with Christ is either comfortable or
their cost. Jesus begins his conclusion on the Sermon on the Mount by laying out two roads. The wide and easy or the hard and narrow. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It's fitting that Jesus would actually end the Sermon on the Mount this way because the whole sermon has been Jesus teaching about what it means to enter into and live in the kingdom of heaven. But you can't just imagine that hearing these words and liking them and even approving of them will get you there. You either follow them or you don't. And that's Jesus' point here. Either you're on the hard and narrow road or you're on the wide and easy road right now. You're either on one or the other. There's no coasting and waiting to see which one you're on. You're on it now. And there's two destinations that you're either headed toward. Either you're headed to life or you're headed to destruction. And here's the thing. Those who don't think they're, or those who are on the wide and easy road don't think that they're on it. Those who are on the wide and easy road assume that they're on the hard and narrow. You, have you ever heard about how we butcher cows, right? We butcher cows because we don't tell them that they're on their way to get slaughtered. Right? Because what happens if, if a cow is stressed out? He releases all kinds of chemicals and hormones into his meat and it ruins the meat. So you have to keep him safe and comfortable and keep him on a little path where he feels safe and he's slaughtered before he knows what's happening. They think they're on the safe path. Now it's easy here to just assume though that those who are on the wide and easy are those who don't profess faith in Christ And those who are on the hard and narrow are those who do. And that's true in a sense. Or or maybe that it's easy to assume that the easy and wide road is filled with those who are engaged in outright sins and the hard and narrow is is those who, who display Christian morality. But that's not what Jesus is saying. The point of what Jesus is saying is that the hard and narrow is just what He's been teaching all along. This greater and deeper righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount has been describing this hard road. A righteousness that is not merely external, but flows naturally from the internal. And that's a hard road because you're not just committing murder, you're not being unduly angry with your brother. You're not just not committing adultery, you're not lusting in your heart. You're not just loving your neighbor, but you're loving your enemy and blessing them. It's a hard road. Jonathan Pennington wrote, The broad and easy way is the way of the Pharisees, whose righteousness is easily definable and can be gritted out solely at the external level. Not committing adultery, not murdering, and so on. The narrow and difficult way is Jesus' vision. A righteousness that requires deep roots and the exposure of one's whole person to God. 
it's hard on one level because it's a road of suffering and persecution. Jesus himself in chapter 5 assumes that his followers will be persecuted. Rejoice when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. So faith is much of a gift as is suffering for the Christian. Or again, Paul writes in Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's hard because it leads to opposition and suffering and persecution. But it's also hard because you can't feign this kind of righteousness. This is a whole person, deep and costly righteousness. It costs all of your energy and all of your desire. It requires your thoughts and your actions, your heart and your love. It's not enough to do the right thing. It's not enough to just have Christian morals. This is a whole person, wholehearted obedience. So your walk with Christ will either be comfortable or costly. Secondly, your walk with Christ is either deceptive or discernible. After describing two roads, Jesus turns and describes two fruits. Verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. It's fitting here that Jesus begins talking about fruit and, and recognizing fruit. Right? You remember two weeks ago we were talking about practicing kingdom discernment, what it means to make moral judgments. And so with that same kingdom discernment, we are called upon to recognize fruit. We're called to recognize what is good and what is bad fruit in a person. Now, just like walking the harder, easy road, the danger is simply assuming that we just bear good fruit. But fruit is essential in following Christ. Jesus in John 15 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And prove, prove by that fruit to be my disciples. Paul writes in Galatians 5, But the fruit of the Spirit, the natural fruit of being indwelt by the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Peter writes in 2 Peter, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge. In knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. It's like when you go to a high school reunion, your 10, 20, 30 year high school reunion, and you, you, you see someone and you're like, you haven't changed a bit. You don't want to be a Christian who hasn't changed. 
it is not good if this is true of us as Christians. It's not good if you're the same as you were one, five, or ten years ago. If we are truly walking with Christ, He changes us. There's a discernible difference in the one who walks with Christ. Not only before we became Christians, but after we became Christians too. There's a discernible difference. There's fruit. Now, just as there are two fruits, there's two levels to this fruit. That's because there is discernible fruit and there's hard to see fruit. Discernible fruit and hard to see fruit. Discernible fruit is the good fruit, like we just, like I just read from scripture. Uh, discernible bad fruit is found in several lists in the Bible, but Second uh, Timothy three gives a good sampling. Paul writes, "For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control." Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with deceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So that's discernible bad fruit. And then there's fruit that's hard to see. It's hard to discern this fruit, which is exactly what Jesus is warning about here. It may not look discernible at first. It may not be obvious at first, but fruit shows itself over time. Pharisees look really good on the outside. Just like a, a rose bush looks beautiful and thornless from a distance. Your first reaction to a Pharisee is to think they're actually saved. But fruit will come out in the end. And hear me, you don't want hard to see fruit. Fruit that we bear if we're following Christ should be obvious and discernible. I used to think that everyone who just said that they believed in God was a Christian like me was saved. That's I listened to a band named Lincoln Park growing up, and if you listen to their music, it's not obviously Christian. And I just took them to be Christians when in their little their thanks to people, it said, We want to thank God. Like, oh great, they're Christians, they're saved like me. But a professing Christian who doesn't bear discernible fruit or who even bears the opposite fruit is likely not a Christian at all. Their whole profession is, is called into question and called into doubt. And to that, Jesus issues one of the scariest warnings in all of Scripture. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do my, many mighty works in your name? If anything were to convince you that you follow Christ, wouldn't it be? Casting out demons in his name? If you were able to heal people in Jesus' name, wouldn't you be convinced that you were following Christ? Verse 23. 
and then I will, will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's not about what you do for Christ. It's not about how many, how mighty or how many your works for him are. Paul says, if I have faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. No, what it's about is fruit that flows from the heart. A heart that has been transformed to love Christ in thoughts and in actions and in words in all areas of life. That's why your walk with Christ is either deceptive to other people and to yourself, or it's discernible. Lastly, your walk with Christ is either apathetic or active. If you've been a homeowner for any amount of time at all, you know how overwhelming it can be to uh, have all the housing projects that you need to get done. So not only are like housing projects ongoing, but they continue to grow. So your list kind of stays the same, and it just grows over time. And so you become overwhelmed with all these projects. But the worst thing that you can do is to neglect your house through apathy and pay no attention to what's happening at all. That's Jesus' point in his final metaphor, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. In the same way that not paying attention to your house results in disaster, not paying attention to the words of Jesus results in disaster. But what's the difference between these two builders? It's not necessarily the foundation, although that's the difference. The difference is doing. Doing. The one who hears these words of mine and does them. Jesus isn't letting us escape with just an easy believism where we get to raise our hands and say we want to be saved or where we get to pray a prayer. He's saying everyone who hears my words and does them. James says it like this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If we hear the word and we don't actively do the word, James says we're deceived. For if anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. The point is, why use a mirror at all? If you're just going to look at yourself intently and walk away and not even remember. Why read God's word if you're not concerned with going out and obeying? But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
James will go on to say, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Listen, we firmly believe that we are saved in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, through no effort of our own. But we also believe that without good works, you cannot be saved. Paul says in Romans 2, God will render to each one according to his works. By patience, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Your works don't save you, but your works are essential evidence that you are saved. Tony Morita said it like this, we don't believe in a work salvation, but we do believe in a salvation that works. We don't believe in a work salvation, we believe in a salvation that works. And what this means is your walk with Christ is either apathetic or active. You might care if you go to destruction versus life, but you don't concern yourself with seriously obeying the words of Christ. You might care about getting to heaven, but you're not as concerned with fleeing earth. This is why the gospel is not a get into heaven for free card. Like monopolies, get out of jail free. If all the gospel is, is is fire insurance for you, then you've missed the point of the gospel. The gospel is about eternal life now that frees us to follow Christ in radical obedience now. The gospel is the glorious reality that through no effort of our own, Our sin has been entirely paid for by the blood of Christ and through faith in Him we are now perfectly righteous. And because we have been saved from eternal death to eternal life, we are now free to follow Christ on the hard road of suffering. You know that you've understood grace when grace wants to make you follow Christ harder, deeper, to go wherever He goes. Christ calls us to a whole person, wholehearted, deeper of righteousness. He doesn't let us off the hook for half-heartedness or apathy or comfort. This costs all that we have. The choice among the thousands that you will make today is before you. Christ Himself lays this before you. And the question is, how will you respond to Him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
you lay this stark contrast before us because you are merciful. Lord, it is a mercy that we are warned of coming destruction. If we're heading for a waterfall and we fall over it to our deaths, it is a mercy that someone tells us to turn back. Lord, it is a mercy that you stand before us at this crossroads and say, this way leads to destruction and this way leads to life. It is a mercy. Because all of us, because of our sin, are on the road to destruction anyway. Lord Jesus, it's not only a mercy that you give us a warning, but a grace that you give us a promise. That when we walk the hard and narrow, that when we bear fruit by your grace, that when we build our house on the rock by obeying your words, our house will stand. That we don't have to fear being rejected by you. If we follow your word and obey your word by simple faith in your grace. Lord, in the Sermon on the Mount, you have both given us a difficult road to follow, but Lord, you have given us all the grace that we need. This isn't about earning our salvation, Lord. It is about walking in our salvation. What you have already accomplished for us. So Lord Jesus, help us to be a people who grasp the salvation by a deeper faith that we would be driven into a deeper righteousness. And we fail. Lord, we so often fail. But we thank you that you are a God who is eager to forgive and a God who desires to bear fruit in your children even more than we desire. So by your zeal, by your divine and passionate love for us, bear fruit in us, bear fruit through us, whatever it takes by the work of your Spirit. Help us to follow the road of the kingdom that you have laid out for us in the Sermon on the Mount and follow you because of the work that you have already done in us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.